Well, good morning. <laughs> I just love that video, and I thought it would be a great way to start our morning since this is our Christmas luncheon. Do you have any special Christmas traditions? Why don't you turn to a couple people near you and share if you have a special Christmas tradition before we start? Before we dive into this week's lesson, I wanted to look back a little bit over our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. So our theme was restoration, and so I just wanted to look back at how we've seen that theme, and I'm just going to give you an overview of what we learned, and then I'm going to give you a chance again to talk to people near you about what stuck out to you um, in this study. So here's my overview. Ezra and Nehemiah were the story of a people returning from exile, rebuilding their temple. It was a story of restoration. And they needed national restoration, but more than that, they needed spiritual restoration. Jeremiah 29.11 reads differently in its context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, And not to harm you. But those plans included their exile into Babylon. They included years without the very temple where God's presence dwelt with his people. Those plans were sometimes painful, but he was and is always in control. We started our study seeing God in control as he moved the heart of even a pagan king to allow the exiles to come back and to rebuild. The Lord who stirs the heart of this pagan ruler stirs our hearts as well. And as they returned to rebuild, we saw this mixture of grief and joy. They came together and we saw them take their sin seriously. As they came back from exile, the first thing they did was deal with their sin because they knew that it was their sin that led them into exile in the first place. We saw a people that were a shadow of what they once were. But at the same time, they recommitted themselves to holy living in a new way. In the book of Ezra, we saw people who rebuilt on a foundation, not of cedar logs, but on the song that they sang, He is good. His love endures forever. Then they finished the work of rebuilding. They celebrated with corporate worship together, and they praised God for his blessings. And we, too, were reminded of the importance of doing that in our daily lives, of living in gratitude so that we are not robbed of our joy by comparison with others. We then talked about the hand of God on our lives, just as it was on the lives of the exiles. We saw people who made mistakes, and how even in their sin, God did not forsake them, and they were truly repentant. They even went on to make a covenant with the Lord. We learned that true repentance is not just feeling sorry or shame or guilt. Instead, it's intentional, honest, and it faces the consequences. Then we came to the book of Nehemiah. And we learned that he was a man of prayer and a man of action. He included himself in the sins of the Israelites. He prayed, 
And then he approached the king. Nehemiah was faced with great fear, but he stepped out in faith. And then he recounts the story of the gracious hand of the Lord upon him as he spoke to the king. He boldly approached the king, and his prayer was answered as he went back to rebuild the walls. But immediately he faced trials. But he called the people to not be afraid and to remember the Lord, great and awesome. And they worked with all their hearts, uniting themselves in this effort while facing opposition, until they faced opposition from inside, from with their own people. That's what halted their work, and Nehemiah had to face them with their sin, with their denial of the gospel, and he called them to radical, costly repentance, which they did. They aimed to live consistent lives that showed radical compassion, mercy, and love, because that is who their God is. Finally, last week, we read this beautiful prayer that called out the promises of God and who he is. As the people confessed their sins, they also praised the Lord over and over again. But God. But God. Over and over, he was always faithful, even when they were not. We saw people who took their sin seriously. They wept because of it over and over throughout this book. And through this prayer, they started with looking at the magnitude of their God. Because as they looked at the magnitude of their God, they saw the magnitude of their own sin. We've covered a lot of ground in just these two small books. But overall, I've seen a story of a people who are trying to commit to holiness, who make mistakes, but they really repent I've seen a story of leaders who are bold. They were bold and they were men of prayer and of action. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah was a story of restoration of not only a broken temple and its walls, but of a broken people who needed to experience the grace and call of the Lord upon their lives. So, as we look back, I wanted to give you a chance to find a couple people sitting near you and group up and share a few things that stuck out to you in your study. What did you get out of this study? Did anything stick out to you? Did anything resonate with you? What challenged you? What did you learn? I'm going to give you five or so minutes to chat with the people near you before we look at today's lesson. Well, I hope that I hope that you got a lot out of these two books and our study of them. I hope that you apply it to your lives and live it out, that it too calls you to radical repentance where it's needed, commitment to holiness as we live our lives before a holy God, and restoration that's founded upon the truth that God is good and his love endures forever. And so today... We come to conclude these books with a commitment that they make together. They make a promise before God in order to live a life of holiness before him. And we're going to see how this commitment is three things. It is, a, it is personal, it is public, and it is practical. So first of all, it's personal. Verses 28 through 29 of our passage. 
The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join in their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. So Ezra had read aloud the words of the law in a few chapters previous, and they realized, as we saw last week, that they had seriously sinned. They had been unfaithful while God had been faithful. They saw their personal culpability. And here in our chapter, they commit themselves to holy living in their personal lives. And it's impossible to look at this chapter and to not see this costly commitment to holiness that ran throughout all of this book. And I just pause here to say that they saw themselves as culpable, and we should too. They realized that they had been privileged with the law, the instructions on how they were to live a life before God, and yet they had failed. And we, even more, have privilege that's even greater. God showed his faithfulness not just through the same history, but through the cross of Christ. We have the privilege of living this side of the cross, and we're even blessed with the Spirit within us. God has been so good to us. He is so faithful. And I'm sure that we can all see ways that we have failed him as well. It is this personal reflection on their own sin. It is through this genuine repentance and sorrow that they decided to make this covenant renewal in our passage. And it's personal. It affects their personal daily lives. But it is also public. It's not just individualistic. It's made in community with others who would hold them accountable to it. So it's not just a personal commitment, it's a public one as well. The names here are listed publicly for us to read. They committed themselves publicly together to holy living. It was a public commitment. It was affirmed and recorded in the presence of many witnesses. The people who had prayed publicly now make their promise public as well. But it's not just personal not just public, but it was practical. This commitment that they made was not a series of generalized statements in carefully chosen words. They committed to specific actions that would characterize their lives and authenticate their witness. It affected their relationships, their time, and their possessions. The first commitment might remind us of something we read in Ezra. It says this in verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. This is about keeping the worship of God and God alone. In a culture where they are exposed to neighboring religions that appeal to them at times, they needed to be careful 
about mixed marriages that could cause them to falter in their relationships with the one true God. Bowing down to idols proved to be a particular struggle for them, and marrying people who worshipped other gods would have caused this temptation to be just too strong. So they recommit themselves to staying faithful to God. The Lord was concerned with the purity of their faith and with the holiness of their lives. So they committed their relationships, but they also committed their time. The weekly Sabbath was given to them as a gift so that they might honor God, enjoy rest, help others, and declare the truth of God. This was a day to honor God. It was set apart from other days, and it was given to God so that they might worship Him without the distractions of everyday life. Other than that, it was also a day of rest. It was to allow those who worked for them to rest as well. And it was a day to declare the truth of God. It was a silent witness to the supremacy of God. Isaiah taught that the Sabbath was not meant to be inhibiting, but instead it was a blessing. It was a joyous experience. Isaiah 58, 13-14 says this, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable, and if you honor it not by going your own way, and not by doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Ezekiel taught that the Sabbath was meant to be a sign. Ezekiel 20 verse 12 says, Also I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between us, so that they would know that I, the Lord, made them holy. The Sabbath was also a sign to their neighbors of their obedience to God, of their care for themselves and their compassion for others. So through this promise, they dedicated their relationships, their time, but also their possessions. They committed to every seventh year forego the working of the land and also to cancel all debts. They committed to giving a third of a shekel for the service of the house of the Lord. They committed to bringing their firsts, their first fruits, their firstborn, the first of their grain offerings. They committed to tithing. Complying with the regulation for the seventh year declared that it was God that had ownership of the land. Leviticus 25.23 says the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. During this time, they were also to cancel all debts, showing that in God's scale, people are valued so much more than things. This reminds us of the problem that Nehemiah encountered with them taking interest from one another and even selling their own children into slavery. Instead, they were to live differently They were to care for the poor among them. And finally, 
This covenant pledge that they make together ends with these beautiful words, We will not neglect the house of our God. What an appropriate way to end this study that centered around rebuilding it. The people committed themselves to worship and service of God. They wished to declare openly their determination to honor God in every aspect of their lives. So how do we conclude this study? As I looked at this commitment they made, I kept thinking of what commitments have I made to honor the Lord with my life. Many of them are just unspoken. I aim to spend time with the Lord, to read his word, to study, to share, to share what I learned, to be in a body of believers by attending church and Bible study. But I can't say that I've made this kind of written, intentional commitment that they make here. It kept me thinking about the new year. A lot of us make New Year's resolutions, but honestly, they often fail before we leave the month of January. I thought a great way to end this year was to leave you with a little homework. Many people make what's called a rule of life. It's a commitment that they make. It's an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the center of all they do. So instead of making a New Year's resolution, I would encourage you to do this instead. Now, this isn't to say that we will follow it perfect and follow it to a T. On the contrary, throughout this study, we have seen over and over again that we fall short. In fact, we can't do any of this by our own strength and power, but only by the Lord working through our lives, through the Spirit. So when we fail, we look back at our rule of life, we see if maybe we need to change it a little bit to make it work better for us, and we come back to God and ask Him for strength. But what are the blessings of having a rule of life? A rule of life is a way of being intentional about the personal rhythms and guidelines that shape our days. They are simply to be centered around loving Christ more than this world. A rule of life is how we present our bodies as a spiritual act of worship, as it says in Romans 12. Each rule is a way that we partner with God for the transformation that only he can bring. And it's not meant to be burdensome. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. But instead, it's meant to be life-giving. It's a brief list of ways that you can support your heart's desire to grow in loving God and in loving others. It's about the gift of limits. And it's about confronting you with the truth that you have limits. So we have to prioritize what's most important to us. But the big theme here is balance. The book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Cesaro says this, The great buried gift in a rule of life is its goal of regulating our entire lives in such a way that we truly prefer the love of Christ above all things. So for this, I have a handout that you probably received as you came in this morning. Um, If you didn't get one, you can grab one as you walk out the door today. I don't want you to fill it out today. There isn't enough time to dedicate to it. But I would encourage you, over the break, 
Spend some time pondering the questions there. And if you find yourself wanting to make a resolution or wanting to commit to more time with the Lord, maybe spend time developing a rule of life. And if the word rule is daunting to you, then change it to the word rhythm, a rhythm for life. So here are some questions that you will look at and ponder. When and where do you feel closest to God? How do you become most aware of his love for you? Are there particular practices that open you to God? Examples could be Sabbath, prayer, devotions, journaling, and there's so many more. What are your biggest priorities? Where do you want to change? And I hope that this is a life-giving time for you, that it creates a sort of rhythm in your life that leads you to a greater love for God. The people during Nehemiah's time were confronted with the law of the Lord. They realized the privilege they had by having that law and how they failed to follow it. What more privilege we have been given this side of the cross, this side of the manger. We know what God did for us. And yet too often we put time with him on the back burner. Too often we don't take our sin seriously. And believe me, I'm talking to myself just as much here. So I hope that during this Christmas season, as we are confronted with the truth that the Messiah came to this earth for us, what a magnificent, marvelous, miraculous, mysterious thing that we will say alongside the people of this chapter, we will not neglect the house of our God. So I'd like to close with a song, of course, and this is a Christmas song that I just love, and I thought it would be a great way to end today as we get ready to break for the Christmas season. It's called Messiah by Francesca Battistelli. So let's close with this song. Close in prayer. Father God, as we enter this Christmas season, may we once again be put in awe of you and all that you've done for us. God, if there's any way that we need to recommit or um, spend more time with you, Lord, may you convict us of that and may we find that rhythm of life spent with you. Lord, I thank you for this study of restoration. Lord, I thank you that you do restore us. I pray that as we go to our luncheon, that this would just be a wonderful time of celebration and fellowship together. I thank you for every lady in this room and for bringing us here to this study and for all that you've done in our lives. Lord, we are so grateful. We love and praise you. In your name I pray. Amen.